Testing, one, two. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Okay, we're good. Oh, yeah, Mike Moore. Oh, man, did we need that music this week, huh? <laughs> You're not having a good week? Uh, it's just so crazy around here at Northern Seminary this week. It is really crazy. Yeah, there's a lot of a lot of classes happening, a lot of people on campus. Uh, we got three intensives. We got the state of Illinois. <laughs> we have three intensives in the state of Illinois. All right, I the state of Illinois is here. I didn't finish the <laughs> sentence, but we okay. got the state of Illinois telling us we can only have 50 oh, people yeah. at a time. Yeah. I think we might be state of Illinois if you're listening might be i don't think we are but we might be pressing those limits we're, we're close to it it is weird being in groups with, with a lot of people i pre- i preached at a church in the far south side this week and they did social distancing but there's a lot of people in the room and i'm not first time i've been in church with people in six months oh so you had church inside we had church outside it yeah, was uh, first time we all gathered uh, uh on a sunday morning and yeah, nice. we did it outside it was great it was fantastic so things are happening uh, mike moore here at northern yes. seminary at the churches across chicagoland and hopefully across the world where all 10 people are listening to us right now you gotta quit saying 10 you gotta <laughs> i mean at least say a few hundred because it is closer to a couple thousand actually all right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Theology on Mission podcast again. We're back uh, where theology meets mission, the questions of engaging culture for Christ and his kingdom. Mike Moore, today we're going to talk about, uh, we promised to do this last uh, podcast, and then we I actually said we'll do it next week. I think it's two or three weeks since we've... Yeah, uh, this is not a hot take. I mean, do you even remember what we were talking about? I don't know. Something, something uh, about a, something about something. Okay, well, today um, is the subject of critical theory, right? Critical theory, and I wrote a post on Professor McKnight's blog on Christianity Today entitled "On Critical Theory and the Christian." Uh, actually, I think McKnight retitled it, which you know is his prerogative, and it's something he does to me all the time, not just on Christianity Today. But anyways, uh, that's a topic for another time. Uh, Critical theory. Uh, Last time we were on the podcast, we were exploring the idea of a foundation for justice. And uh, I was asking, can biblical justice be a foundation in one of two ways? Can it be, A, an objective truth to be argued for over against uh, other versions of justice? Or B... Can it be a tradition of justice worked out over, uh, excuse me, I got distracted because I was turning off my phone. Can it be a tradition of justice to be worked out in the lives of Christians as a church people under his lordship lived before the world and engaging the world? Do you get the difference there? Do you remember the difference from the last podcast? I remember that, yes. Yeah, because I think it changes our posture and the way we want to go about engaging the world for justice. Yes. Are you there, Mike Moore? I'm there. I remember us talking about justice being contested and how do we witness to other uh, versions of justice. And then we talked a lot about posture and engagement. Yeah. I think uh, posture A is we can get coercive thinking we know what justice is. And that assumes Christendom, typically. Typically. Posture B 
says, uh, we're going to live out justice as a people, seeking to submit to Jesus as Lord and all he's doing among us so that we can then share that justice with the world. And that posture you think is more efficacious in a post-Christendom context. Yeah. And so we have option A and option B. So people out there, especially you pastor types, you know who you are. (laughs) Uh, Do you lead your church into justice via posture A or posture B? And I'm not going to get on you if you're doing an A. I'm just going to suggest we're not in control. Uh, We... Conceivably, we're never in control, Mm -hmm. but as a culture, we, the church hasn't been a respected voice for a while, at least in the North, the Northwest, the Northeast, and Canada. Yeah, especially near cities. Yeah. So this gets us to the topic of of critical theory. Do you think this, I see it everywhere. I see it uh, every time somebody raises the issue of critical race theory. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's the hot topic right now. I feel like, of course... This is a version of critical theory. Uh, Derek Bell and the others uh, from the 90s that started to work in this field uh, were relying on and using actual words and concepts from the post-structuralists of Europe. Uh, At least that's how I read them. Uh, So it's nothing new, but why is it so hot? what's, What's... What's got everybody up in arms over critical race theory? I think that's the aftermath of George Floyd and the other instances of police brutality that we've seen across North America, especially the last four months. Well, what about it? I mean, why why did people get talking about all of a sudden critical race theory after the George George Floyd? Well, I think people are talking about. I think people are talking about race more, and then as there's just more. Uh, research or questions or dialogue in the public. I think we're leaning on some of the academic institutions and critical race theory has all of a sudden become mainstream. Yeah. Um, and, and just to be, uh, you know, just to do a insufficient summary of, I think, what, what critical race theory is, it helps mm-hmm. us understand that race and racism is not merely a personal attribute of an individual it is a way of seeing the world. It is a construct, and it has cultural origins, and it goes, and and so race and racism was alive and well and being built into our systems long before I was ever born. And so, unless we can get at the frame mm-hmm. that helps us see one another in certain ways, the so-called white supremacy, whiteness, white privilege frames that, by the way, are equally at work in white people and black persons and persons of color of other color. So it's much bigger than just my individual behavioral characteristics that make racism such an evil to be thwarted in our culture. That's what I think critical race theory does. Why do you think people are so, uh, what motivates the people who do not like critical race theory? Oh, that's a great question. I think, um, and this kind of leads into your article, but I think for a lot of people, it feels like um, you're beginning to pull out the foundations or the rungs and the ladder for how they understand race or how you understand justice. And once you start pulling some of these things out, they have nothing to stand on. And, and I think the critique I hear most frequently is that critical race theory turns things, um, or turns the conversation into just relativism. It all is based on your individual interpretation. There is no higher truth. 
because we're all interpreting it based on our personal experience and how we relate to each other. Right. Once you turn something into a cultural construct, yes, we kind of feel like we don't have this, the standing to be able to say, I'm not a racist. Absolutely. Or, uh, or racism is good or racism is bad. I, it's taken out of my control. And, and, and frankly, so that's where we're at here. Uh, by the way, uh, I'm not saying Tim Keller does that at all in any way, no. shape, or form. But that gets to why uh, I want to just have a few riffs on critical theory and encourage pastors, leaders, Christians to, uh, you know, uh, read it and uh, think about mm-hmm. it. And I, I feel like it's so important in relation to the sexuality yes. crisis we're in right yes. now. The, I also think it's really important in terms of racism. Uh, even the way immigration has been ideology, everything gets ideologized in our culture, even uh, wearing a mask. That's right. Where did that come from? Or <laughs> do, today's news or yesterday's news, um, we can't trust any anything anybody's saying about a vaccine. So what's 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 the point? Right. Why even have it? Right. Yeah. Uh, it becomes politicized very quickly. Yeah. So um, moving into uh, Dr. Keller's article, which we will post on the webpage mm-hmm. again. It's posted on the previous podcast webpage as well. Uh, Dr. Keller actually labels postmodern critical theory as his fourth view of justice. And he gives uh, several descriptors of what is the content of this postmodern critical theory. Um, And so, uh, and of course, he dismantles it as a legitimate theory of Mm -hmm. justice. I think that's maybe part of what you were trying to get at is that people get uncomfortable with critical race theory. Can we can we try to understand this folks out there instead of turning this into an us versus them, uh-huh. which I don't know if you feel this listeners out there, but Mike Moore is always trying to turn everything into an <laughs> us versus them. Uh, there are times when I am very guilty of doing that. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're not. I'm worse than you. Anyways, um, uh, but uh, I just want to think, uh, I, I just want to say that uh, I don't believe I am in agreement with Dr. Keller. Did you hear that? Can we have some drum rolls mm, or something? I'm in agreement with him. It's not a theory of justice. It's actually uh, uh, almost a counter theory of justice. You remember? You remember those days? I was in graduate school in the '90s when we were reading, when we were forced to read Derrida and and, and Foucault and. And Leotard, and uh, hmm. oh, and then all the post Marxist critical theorists. And, so, and by the way, it was an invaluable education for me, but um, I'm making fun of it now. But uh, there were a lot of things they made me do in graduate school that I am grateful they did, yeah. and this is one of them. But, um, you know, uh, it's, not a, it's not a justice theory. Der- Derrida, you know, is famous as saying, you know, that true justice, there is no such thing, right. that justice right. is always being deferred once we think it's arrived. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, it's been put into text. We have to now deconstruct it all over right. again because, of course, the text uh, ensconces power relationships. And so justice has now been made a tool of a power interest. And, that, and that, that's Foucault, right? You were saying Derrida. Well, that's, uh, no, that's actually the way Derrida talks about justice. In okay. his later writings, right before he died, he started to try to piece together a theory of justice. But I'm talking about the main body of his work there, uh, but also Foucault, using genealogy, tried to show uh, where the various ideas of justice come from. I mean, and power is always 
at work in whatever morality. This is Nietzsche. He was kind of riffing off on Nietzsche. He was influenced, obviously, he was influenced by Nietzsche, but he developed it into a whole uh, uh, cultural method called genealogy where he showed that justice is always um, uh, in the interest of power. Yeah. So uh, it's not really a good theory of justice. No. And it's you're saying... Th- it's, a, it's a theory of why there is no justice. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's a good turn of phrase right there. Well, I, I don't know if it was totally accurate, but it okay, sounded good. Okay. Sorry, well, sorry, yeah. sorry if it, it, it's oversimplified. Well, yeah, of course, but it's still a good turn of phrase. Yeah. Um, and so can I make this distinction now, folks, and I want to hear what you think about it, Mike Moore. I want you know, say, uh, Fitch, I think you're a genius, or <laughs> Fitch, I think you're an idiot. Uh, it's either us have, versus them. I only have two options here. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, instead of looking at critical theory as a theory of justice, can we look at it as a tool of diagnosis? Okay. Are you on board? Mm-hmm. Yep. Let's do it. Uh, can we uh, use it? To clarify and unravel and make obvious the issues of power and antagonism hmm. and cultural frameworks uh, that are at work in the way we engage racism, sexuality, gender, inequality, economics, politics. Can it become a tool, instead of a theory of justice, can it become a tool of diagnosis? Okay. So it's less like medicine. It's more like a thermometer. Does that work? Wait a minute. Like I thought a, you're gonna say like a th- <laughs> like a thermometer checks your temperature. So you're saying that like, this is a tool instead of you, oh let's let's go with this instead of uh, a medicine uh-huh. that you take for the cure. Yep. It's a thermometer to tell you what medicine to take. Yes. I love it. Great. Good. Right. Genius. That's my contribution. Genius, Mike Moore. <laughs> Genius. Um, okay, so Keller uh, uh, talks a, a long time about critical theory. I just want to take uh, three things that he says, and I want to actually um, k- kind of tease out the practical Im- yeah. impact. So first thing uh, Keller talks about is, or this isn't the first thing he talks about. This is the first thing I am, I am uh, picking out three things from Keller's long excursus. If you want to look at it, folks, it's on the show notes from the podcast. First one is uh, on discourse. Uh, he says, critical theory, quote, the main way power is exercised is through language, through, quote, dominant discourses. Language does not merely describe reality. It constructs or creates reality. Hmm. That is, I mean, I think Keller is pretty accurate on sure. that even though it is a generalization. And by the right. way, it's hard to generalize about critical theory yeah, because it includes post-structuralists. It, it includes those old thinkers we used to call post-modern thinkers, Derrida, Lyotard. Uh, it, it includes a bunch of post-Marxists like Mouf and Zizek. And, uh, you're, just, you're just making names up now. Uh, I, I, if I go into speaking French, you'll know I've gone off the rails. Yes. Uh, but I find, okay, so... I think that's accurate, and mm-hmm. I think uh, with Keller, I don't think it forms a good theory of justice, but I think it does give us the wherewithal uh, to discourse analysis gives us the wherewithal to unfold the f- 
the things that are forming us to see things in certain ways. We see reality the way it is because of the frameworks, the discourses that we have been ensconced into. Mm -hmm. Ensconced means you've been absorbed into it. It's like a fish, a goldfish in a... uh, 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 aquarium, aquarium, things like, uh, and, and the goldfish doesn't know he or she is swimming is in water. David Foster Wallace, yes, mm-hmm. excellent. And uh, by the way, that's in what that, that was in his that speech, his, uh, Kenyan speech. Kenyan College mm-hmm. speech. Kenyan Look college. it up, folks. That's that's great stuff. Um, but um, um, yeah. you're saying that language. Uh, well, he's saying language creates a reality. I think he's saying it pejoratively, though. But you're saying that this is actually this is a actually an tool. insightful tool. Okay, so you know, uh, in in racism, uh-huh. um, I mean, let's let's go to sexuality for a minute. Okay, uh, there's a framework there that James Dobson and Matthew Vines have both bought into. The romantic frame of James American individualism. Dobson says attraction is the in, is the important ingredient that keeps that makes marriage possible between a man and a woman. Mm-hmm. Matthew Vines, an advocate for affirming uh, lesbian, uh, LGBTQ, and other uh, sexuality and marriage, uh, says the same thing. Right, and so we have. We have a whole foundation of heterosexuality, attraction, romanticism that really started to develop in the uh, mid-1800s. And we've based our whole sexuality. But actually, there's parts of it that are deeply against uh, uh, the way of God in Jesus Christ. Uh, I'll give you an example of what I mean. When when a man looks at a woman and says, I'm attracted to her, and then mm-hmm. lists off some of her body parts. Right. That is what the, that's that's objectifying the human body. Yeah. And yet somehow subliminally we have made that okay, and it's the basis of marriage. Right. Okay, right. so I just confused a whole bunch of people. No, out no, no, there. no. I, I think I think that makes sense. You're you're saying there's lots of there's lots of modes of discourses. There's lots of um, forces that shape that man's desire and attraction. That gets to the issue of subjectivity, which we're okay. going to get okay. to right now. I just want to say the framework of heterosexuality and heteronormativity that we have adopted, both evangelicals, progressive evangelicals, and actually I would say a large part of the United States romanticist culture that's watched Friends and How I Met Your Mother for for years, and we never examine the frame. We just say we are either affirming uh, relationships in this frame or not affirming relationships Mm -hmm. in this frame, and we never get to look at the frame. Right, right. That's good. And that's why discourse analysis is so blankety-blank expletive important. Hmm. Yeah. That's why if we don't get to see the frame, like racism is a framework. If we can't get out of the frame and distance ourselves from the frame long enough to see what it's doing to people, what it's doing not only to, to black persons and other persons of color, but it's actually doing a lot to us white persons mm. in the way we look at people, understand people, think about what makes people work in a capitalist culture. If we don't get to look at those frames, we cannot unravel the damage and the pain and the brokenness in these frameworks and get out of it. Mm. It's good. And we'll never get saved. 
And I believe we need to get saved out of some of our frameworks. So I am all for critical theory and I'm all for race, critical race theory. Take that! (laughs) Because you're saying that this focus on discourses helps us zoom out and see the frame as opposed to just having our eyes up, up to the painting, let's say, or the photo. We can actually zoom out and see the frame that the painting or the photo is in. Yeah, I was just reading this book. I, I, I won't go into it now, but it was a, it was a wonderful book by a uh, queer woman, married queer woman, a uh, pastor, on her oh. journey to being coming queer. And uh, all, it, was, it was a litany of all the events I see as happening in so many people today. Not everybody, mm-hmm. but so many people are rejecting the categories that were kind of coercively forced upon her in her evangelical fundamentalism. The purity movement, I see. Like that was just one part of it. And you're given certain boxes, and this is straight from God. I actually know their cultural constructs. Right, right. Male, female uh, from 1958 is rather new development, the nuclear family, all that stuff. Now, people are getting nervous out there. Oh, Fitch, here you're going into your relativism and critical theory. Right. No, I'm I'm not doing away with gender, and I'm not doing away with God-ordained sexuality, but we need to see the frames that are shaping us, that actually are shaping us in ways counter to Jesus Christ and what he wants to do in the world to redeem the world. And you're saying that gender, for example, can be God-ordained, but it is also largely shaped by social constructs. And a lot of those cultural constructs are uh, patriarchal. Yeah. are misogynist. Yeah. And, and antithetical are, to God's kingdom. And, and and there's a lot of reasons why people are, like like I used to say, when I worked on Wall Street in my very young days, and I saw the, the sexuality culture and the gender culture mm-hmm. of that, I, I says, if I was a woman working in this culture, I would be a lesbian. Because mm. it was so misogynist. Right. To be a woman was to be misogynized in that wow. culture. I would reject it mm. hook, line, and sinker. Mm. And uh, I think we just got to understand the antagonisms going on in our culture before we start making uh, grandiose statements about we're affirming this or we're not affirming it. Yeah, yeah. And that's why I think discourse analysis or, or understanding the frames are so important. That's great. That's great. All right, two more. Yes. Uh, Keller, uh, uh, so the first one was on discourse. The second one, Keller, is on power. Uh, Dr. Keller says the entire, that, that critical theory asserts that reality is at, at bottom about nothing but power. And if that is the case, then to see reality, I'm quoting Dr. Keller, by the way, power must be mapped through the means of intersectionality. Only powerlessness and oppression bring moral high ground and true knowledge. Therefore, those with more privilege must not enter into any debate. Hmm. Okay. Uh, So at the bottom, reality is all about power. Um, All I can say is he's oversimplifying a complex idea, but uh, uh, I I think he knows that. And, but I do think he sees this aspect of critical theory as, as correct. I, I think he's, so much of critical theory is the deconstruction of power relationships. And if you even follow Foucault, but you follow Judith Butler, and you follow other people following Foucault and Butler, mm-hmm. you know, it's always about power and the oppressive uh, nature of power. So I think he's got it right. But what I want to say is, well, this is enormously helpful hmm. to understand 
the asymmetrical power and abusive coercive power relationships that are forming gender, sexuality, race, the way we look at immigration, the way socioeconomics and capitalism has developed into a system. And maybe there's a reason why tax cuts uh, is something that we need to see the ideological power structures at work. And so what I believe critical theory does um, is it helps deconstruct uh, the power and the coercive power at work. Can I can I ask you a follow up? Absolutely. That's your job yeah. here is to to disagree <laughs> ask the with me. Follow up, sir. To, that's one to of po- your poke a little bit. That's one of your many jobs, by the <laughs> way. You've, you've got more jobs at Northern Seminary than anybody I know. <laughs> I appreciate uh, that. But b- besides your positive, your many positive contributions to this podcast, one of your main jobs is to disagree with me. Is to put on my <laughs> is to occasionally put on my uh, reformed card. Um, what I think Dr. Keller does so well here is he's capturing this fomenting frustration from a lot of conservatives, quote, those with more privilege must not enter into any debate. They must simply give up their power. Only powerlessness and oppression brings moral high ground and true knowledge, end quote. Um, I'm, yeah. I'm sympathetic right. to that because intersectionality alone, you know, this is my read on it, intersectionality alone is not viable criteria for discerning morality and justice. It falls into identity politics. And we saw identity politics fail on the left in 2016, still failing. It worked really well for Donald Trump, which has not led to a moral high ground. So what do we do with this tool of intersectionality? How do we appeal to it? Yeah. Well, um, all right. Let me get to that right away. Uh, But maybe this will help. I think that what critical theory does do is it helps us uncover the power relationships at work in the various constructs. Uh, Some of the best stuff I've ever read are from queer theorists helping me understand how patriarchy has determined what a woman is and how so much of, of the gender constructs of our day are a reaction to and a rejection of being shaped uh, as a woman, which means I must be be submitted to abuse by a man. Mm-hmm. So and until we uncover that, um, we're not going to get at the struggle people are having, and and even children are having, in determining. Oh, why do I would never want to be a woman because that's what a woman's got to do, say, talk like, walk like, etc. And until we get at those power constructs, we're never going to get anywhere. And by the way, I believe Jesus overcomes all hierarchy and patriarchy. Mark 10, 42. You know that the Gentiles lord it over you. Their, their rulers are tyrants over you. Not so among us or you. Among we enter into this world of mutuality. And if we're ever going to get there to the healing of gender, racism, etc., we've got to be able to uncover and be real about the power that has been ensconced. By the way, ensconced means we've been absorbed into it without even knowing it. Right. Um, having said that, now, what about us white guys uh, who have been ensconced in the power structures and are so used to 
being in power that we don't even see it, know it, or understand it, feel it. We're just we're just doing what we do. Right. White guys. Uh, <laughs> all I can say about that is number one, we gotta us white people gotta go white males in particular gotta go into the room and listen and posture ourselves to serve one another. That's what Jesus was saying in Mark 10, and that's what Jesus is saying plenty of other times. That's what Jesus' example was when he when he knelt at the disciples' feet and washed their feet after he said, this is the kingdom. Mm-hmm. Uh, those in, I always say, those in perceived power go first in terms of submitting one to another. And that opens space for the freedom and empowerment, empowerment in Jesus' way uh, for the other person to be heard. Um, I never go where I'm not invited. I never speak where I'm not invited to speak. More and more people are saying, Dave, we need you to speak because if the white person, the white male doesn't speak, uh, then we'll never get anywhere. And I believe that's true because even in the United States, to, to put it uh, um, straightforwardly, uh, white Americans are still, I think, uh, 61% yeah, still, still of, of the country. And we probably own, uh, I don't know, what percent of the wealth. And we probably still control what percent of the boardrooms. And if so, if we're not participating, if we're just we're just sitting in the back row somewhere, if uh, I don't care what will happen, nothing will change. Hmm. we got to participate, but we got to participate in this new way that deconstructs power and allows space, open space for, for mutuality of voices to be heard and for God to work among us in the healing of the nations. Anyways, we could, we could do a whole podcast on that. Yeah, I think we have, actually. <laughs> I mean, oh, we that, have? Now that I bring it up. All right. Last thing on, on the list here uh, of Keller's uh, uh, architect, uh, the way he describes critical race theory is the word subjectivity. And here's his words on this. He says, quote, neither individual rights nor individual identity are primary in critical theory. It is an illusion to think that as an individual, you can carve out an identity in any way different or independent of others in your race, ethnicity, gender, and so on. Group identity and rights are the only real rights. And so, again... I, I believe what Keller is talking about is basically uh, a generalization, but it's an accurate, decent generalization. And what critical theorists ta- often refer to this as is subjectivity. Subjectivity acknowledges that individuals are all shaped by cultural constructs to, and this is important, to feel, to believe, to aspire, to desire to play certain roles, to be attracted to certain ideas or persons or things or shapes. And so we're all being woven into a discourse. It sounds, and, and if you read a lot of ideologists, people writing on ideology, they get very, some of them go, well, we can never get out of it. We're stuck here. And I think that's what people are afraid of. Uh, but I want to say that uh, this is a corrective to uh, modern epistemology and let's call it 
uh, North American evangelicalism that just thinks we're all uh, cogito thinking, autonomous individuals capable of making up our own mind, capable of changing, capable of not being a racist at the mm-hmm. snap of a finger when I got saved and said, Lord, uh, um, uh, make me not a racist, and oh, boom, I get transformed. Actually, there are some things that take time, and you need to understand just how much of yourself is being formed by the culture, by yeah. the constructs, by the power structures, subjectivity. Yeah. I think we need to see ourselves in this way to get anywhere in our culture. What do you think, Mike Moore? I, I think Dr. Keller's concern here is that um, we will give permission for people to abdicate personal responsibility. I think that's where the critique on subjectivity comes from. I, I, If I can give an example, I... I saw this debate. I saw this on YouTube between Joe Rogan, host of popular podcast, and Ben Shapiro, the conservative political commentator. Okay, you're smiling. I'm just going to tell you the conversation. So Ben Shapiro saying, "Hey, you know how you get um, young black kids to quit shooting guns? Have them quit shooting guns. They need to make different decisions." And Joe Rogan is replying. Yeah, but if you grow up and you're in a gang by the time you're 10 because you don't have a father and you're gonna, you'll get killed if you don't join, what other de- other decisions do you have? I, that yeah. to me kind of describes this uh, um, th- this conversation, you could maybe say conflict. And I think to the conservative point, which I think Tim Keller is tipping his hat towards, is we're just going to give up personal responsibility? Like that person didn't shoot the gun? Don't they have the agency to change? Yeah, yeah. I I know this is kind of like a knee jerk kind of reaction uh, of all of us who are conservatives. Did you hear I said us? Yeah, oh, that was nice. Thank you. Uh, and, and okay, uh, the important point here is not to, uh, you know, cr- okay. I started out by saying critical theory is a diagnostic tool. It's mm-hmm. not meant to be completely prescriptive of the way all things are. Right. But, you know, we've had um, a litany of spiritual formation uh, writers, beginning with Dallas Willard and uh-huh. Richard Foster, and then uh, going on and on with, uh, you James know... James Bryan Smith. Uh, James Bryan Smith, but also people like James K.A. Smith, mm-hmm. uh, right. who uh, actually have helped to see that um, the culture that we can't just go to a mega church and make up a decision. We are being shaped by our culture six and a half days of the week, even if we do have a great Sunday morning experience. Uh, so this is nothing new, um, but it, it is an awakening for evangelicals. Now, I, so, so don't take it too far, but you must start to understand uh, to what degree you are being shaped by the culture around you before you can, uh, I was going to say, before Jesus can save you. Uh, but that is part of, mm-hmm. of Jesus Absolutely. saving you, an awakening to what you, how you are being formed. The, se- the second thing um, I want to say is that uh, too often evangelicals 
uh, getting back to the sexuality thing, but it's it's exactly the same phenomena in racism. You, you know, Ta-Nehisi Coates wrote in that mm-hmm. book, I don't know, ten years ago. Yeah, between the world. Uh, and how me. he how he grew up thinking to be white was to be better, and how he aspired. I still meet African American people who uh, still have the standards. Uh, these, these things that in academia. Uh, we all know are these uh, white Euro standards, sure. yet, yeah. and they even know they're white Euro standards, but they still want them. Hmm. Um, and and I'm going, no, I don't think I want them. Uh, hmm. I'm coming out of the frame; they're still in the frame. Yeah. Uh, uh, whiteness in, is internalized uh, by African Americans just as much as it is in white people and other mm-hmm. people of persons of color, and so. Uh, until we realize that, we're never going to be able to get out of it. In terms of sexuality, we just think, oh, I was born this way. This is who I am. My attractions, my desires, everything I feel, uh, that's just the way I am. No, actually, there's a subjectivity. And actually, it's the queer theorists that help us uh, unwind what is we're actually being shaped to feel that way for certain reasons having to do with socioeconomic structures mm-hmm. of this culture. Mm-hmm. So until we get – it's so health – it's diagnosis – we don't yeah. go into uh, we don't go into a doctor's office and say, "Look, I don't want you to tell me why uh, my right knee is hurting so bad and <laughs> sends a sharp pain up my back, um, because then you would be determining me and I wouldn't be able to make a decision anymore as to what right. I want to do." Right. <laughs> no, we need a diagnosis. Hmm. Is that? Sorry, I got a little wound up on no, that. No, that was good. That's good. You're, you're using the medicine thermometer metaphor, extending it. I appreciate that. And so I think all, I'm going to make a last bold statement. Say it. I think all pastors, beginning with the pastors, mm-hmm. all leaders in the church, as we are engaging these cultural issues of our time, you must become proficient at critical theory. Hmm. And then in order to do that, I know no better place to do that than Northern Seminary. <laughs> M.A. Theology and Mission. <laughs> okay, I stuck a little commercial nice. there in at the end. <laughs> <Cha-ching>. <laughs> yeah, th- th- this is good. Maybe one last thing I'll say um, that I've observed is in Dr. Keller's first article, he was gleaning what he thought was helpful from the other justice traditions. Yes. Right? Um, but when it came to critical theory, he actually didn't glean what was helpful from it. And I think that's that's what you're doing here is you're saying, hey, we can appropriate or not appropriate, but there's some good wisdom here that we can use for our um, discernment of justice. So are you saying, are you making the proposal that uh, Dr. Keller should write a book with me on this subject? Yeah. Or at the very least, come on the podcast. Dr. Keller, I just want to say, I love you. Mike Moore loves you. We all love you. We, this, this, the, the amount of time we've spent uh, interacting with you shows how much yes. we respect you. Absolutely. And if you want to come onto the podcast and talk anytime, that'd be great. Or fly on out here to Northern Seminary and let's let's hang out. You're getting a lot of notices, which means we got to get back to the Northern Mayhem right now, <laughs> folks. It's been good to be with you again on Theology on Mission podcast, where theology meets mission and the cultural uh, challenges of our time for Christ and His King. Kingdom. Uh, if you have time and you feel the the urge of the Holy Spirit, give us a good review. And now, don't even give us a good review. Just give us a review. Yeah, Spread the we'll word, because uh, we'd love to have you and other listeners uh, with us on a regular basis. Until then, uh, we're running out of time. Mike Moore's getting signals. He's got to go upstairs for the next <laughs> MA Theology and Mission meeting. 
Um, I want to thank everybody for joining us. Yes. Uh, it's Dave Fitch and Mike Moore. Over and out. <laughs>